Welcome back to the 59th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including a lawsuit coming out of Seattle going after big tech companies. We also are going to look at an article that really breaks down how the Federal Census Bureau and a few other organizations have looked at the statistics a little bit wrong and been misstating the vast inequity when it comes to wealth in America. And of course, we'll have a final article. Normally it's international, but today we're going to be discussing a peace protest outside the Pentagon. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So, with this big discussion around big tech companies, I want to ask, to what degree should big tech companies be accountable for their algorithmic manipulation of people? You know, while I despise TikTok, I still fall victim to the algorithms on YouTube, for example, and they're almost unavoidable in today's world unless you completely delete these apps and you only use them when necessary to look at videos that your friends may send you or when your teacher gives you an assignment, maybe you look up a YouTube video. But for the most part, they're really hard to avoid. And even if you avoid the social media apps, that algorithm is still being used on you in search engines such as Google. So... Where is the line is the real question. Where is the line that determines where these companies' accountability ends and our personal responsibility to decide not to use these apps, to use them sparingly, to not allow them to manipulate our searches and spend less time on them, honestly. Where does that line exist? How much personal responsibility can we attribute to this problem of being used as a data point and how much can we blame the companies and I think it's a very gray line and some people would argue that it is completely on the companies and other people would argue there's a lot more personal agency there and I would come on the side of there's a lot more personal agency there and that's because I don't want to blame anybody else for these situations I'm the one that chose to sit down. I'm the one that chose to go on YouTube and spend an hour, maybe two hours on it, get lost in the algorithm. And yes, of course, they're taking advantage of my brain chemistry, but I still could have chosen not to go on YouTube. I could have taken a walk outside, maybe listen to a podcast. So at the end of the day, we need to really determine where this line is, especially if we're going to start having more conversations about this in the future, because we've already started. But when it comes to regulation and the government getting involved, we can't just outright blame companies because then that takes away personal agency from people. And then people get used to the idea that, oh, no, no, it's not our fault. We're just being manipulated instead of saying, no, we actually have a choice and we can choose just like in the free market. If we don't want a certain product, if we don't like a company's values, we can choose not to go to that company and not give them our money. And you can choose not to go to these companies that use these algorithms and give them your data and give them your time. I know that was a bit of a long daily debate, but that's because it segues very nicely 
into this first article from NPR. Seattle schools are suing tech giants for having young harming young people's mental health. So over the past couple years, the truth about how these social media companies and social media in general affects teenagers' minds has come out and how it kind of alters their incentive structures. It's really been revealed and broadcast to the public, causing much justifiable outrage, in my opinion. And there have been many lawsuits filed by parents and different organizations, but a new one on Friday came in, which is from a school system in Seattle, Washington, which I thought was very interesting. This is, though I don't necessarily agree that a school system should be stepping in and taking the role of the protector as much as their these children's parents should, I think it is a symbolic gesture saying, no, 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 this is bigger than just parents being outraged. This is affecting how these kids are learning. And while I don't know if all of their arguments are well-founded enough to actually affect how Google, TikTok, Meta all operate, I do think it is a symbolic move trying to draw more attention to this and trying to get the government to understand that this is much more far-reaching than just individual behavior. It's affecting an entire school system's behavior. If at the end of the day, the large majority of a populace who goes to school is depressed, sad, has no hope, that actually filters out into the community. It filters out to other students in the school. And at the end of the day, it affects more than just the person that is being harmed by these social media companies. So I think it is an important symbolic gesture that these schools are coming out and doing this. Quote, Seattle Public Schools filed the lawsuit Friday in U.S. District Court. The 91-page complaint says the social media companies have created a public nuisance by targeting their products to children. It blames them for worsening mental health and behavior disorders, including anxiety, depression, disordered eating, and cyberbullying, making it more difficult to educate students and forcing schools to take steps such as hiring additional mental health professionals, developing lesson plans about the effects of social media, and providing additional training to teachers, end quote. And there are, there are probably those, after reading something like that, that would argue, that would say, well, this is the purview of schools. They are meant to help children grow, help the children mature, and make them a productive member of society. So, of course, these schools should have to put these different programs in place. If this is a reality that kids are facing nowadays, then of course kids should have to face this head on and these teachers should be trained on how to help these kids and they should be given more resources in order to do so. And then the more cynical among us, including myself here, would say, one, we shouldn't have to give that extra funding because this, in theory, is a preventable problem. At the end of the day, these social media companies could have a policy in place that under 18-year-olds, uh, the algorithm is less heavily weighted, it doesn't show certain harmful content, so on and so forth. And also, at the end of the day, it is actually not these teachers' jobs to fully assimilate these kids into society. While they play a small role, I would say it's even more important for the parents of these children to actually get them ready to go into society. 
I would say school, their job is to educate the child about the realities of the world, but not necessarily console them when they're having a hard time with their social media algorithm, when they're getting disordered eating. While, of course, there are counselors that can deal with this, this is something that needs to happen within a household. And parents need to be addressing a majority of these issues, these feelings of sadness. And I understand a lot of people don't necessarily want to go to their parents, but that's also an issue. We need to be able to trust our parents more than you would trust a school system administrator to help you in these situations. And that's where I have a divide here. I like that this school system is stepping up and trying to help these kids or at least draw attention to this issue. But I also feel like at the end of the day, they should not have to be the one doing it. The parents, the ones who deeply care about their kids and should care about their kids the most, should be the first line stepping up, really taking charge here. And this school system should not have had to do this in the first place. And the fact that they are doing it is very interesting. And it raises a lot of questions. And we'll see how this pans out long term. So this lawsuit is aimed at Meta, Google, Facebook, and TikTok, all companies that use an algorithm to keep users hooked on the content and to keep their eyes on the screen. Quote, the lawsuit says that from 2009 to 2019, there was an average of 30% increase in the number of Seattle public school students who reported feeling sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks or more in a row that they stopped doing some typical activities. The school district is asking the court to order the companies to stop creating the public nuisance, to award damages, and to pay for prevention education and treatment for excessive and problematic use of social media, end quote. And like I've said a few times during this article, it's sad that the school district and parents have to file a lawsuit to protect the most vulnerable people in our society. But very often, businesses are solely out for profits and must keep that in check. And it's very interesting to me because at the end of the day, I'm not saying that these effects from Meta, Facebook, Google, all these different companies that are using these, I'm not saying the effects are enough that the suicide rate has skyrocketed. But if you know that some of your algorithms will have this effect on people, and from studies that we've looked at, it's most likely to be the people that use your product the most, then why would you want to increase the likelihood that that person that uses your product the most commits suicide? You're losing a customer. And I know, I know, I know that sounds really harsh and that sounds very cold, but that's looking at it from a purely profit perspective. And I don't understand how they can come to this justification in their mind that, no, no, it's okay. We can exploit these kids. If there's a few negative side effects, it's no big deal. We don't need to protect the most vulnerable population. We don't need to protect the future leaders of our country. We don't need to ensure that they're seeing content that will actually make them love America, want to work to preserve America. No, no, no. We can show them content that's coming from different countries. That's China, Russia, maybe Iran, other countries that just don't like us putting out information on social media. I mean, at the end of the day, and let's be clear, I don't necessarily think that we should force these companies to put out any content that is necessarily pro-America because it's their choice at the end of the day. But if you're looking at it from a 
purely utilitarian, mm, that's not the right word. If you're looking at it from a purely logical standpoint and you take a step back and you say, well, we want our future leaders to be great. We want our future leaders to be educated. We want them to be smart. We don't want them to feel sad. We want them to feel hope. Then in theory, if you wanted to promote that content, you could on your platform. And therefore, you would be spreading those sort of messages to young people. Then again, those messages don't get as many clicks. So I understand why Meta, Google, all these other companies, they have turned the way they turned. But it is sad that it most directly, this use of algorithms to put up content that is sensational most terribly affects the young people in our society. And I think that this lawsuit, while it probably won't pan out, like I said before, it's symbolic. And we need to keep it in mind moving forward. All right. So we got through that one a little bit slower than I wanted to. Our second article comes from Real Clear Politics. The myth of American inequality. And let's start with the really bold opening to this article. Quote, the federal government significantly and intentionally misreports income distribution, sparking bad policies and political divisions. That's the argument former Senator Phil Graham and two other economists, Robert Eklund and John Early, lay out in their compelling and essential new book, The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate, end quote. And yes, I understand that this is a basically a big promotion piece for their book, but they bring up a few good topics and a few things that you as an average day citizen should understand, and I think is very interesting when I heard it. Now, is it the end-all be-all? No, but it's something that I think that is worth your time to hear. Quote, using 2017 figures as their reference, their sprawling and statistic-heavy work, blessedly, results in one key observation. While the U.S. Census Bureau reports that the average income of the top 20% of Americans' households that year was 16.7 times greater than the average income of the bottom 20% of households, the real number, they argue, is 4.1 times. This massive disparity is explained by a straightforward accounting trick. The Bureau didn't count two-thirds of the $2.8 trillion in transfer payments given mostly to the poor and working class or the $4.4 trillion taken through federal, state, and local taxes, 82% of which were paid by the top 40% of household earners, end quote. So what the authors of this book did is they said, okay, well, the old standard, and I don't, let me check if I have the quote here that, okay, no. So basically, during the 40s, what happened was there was a need or a want to really analyze the value of American households and to understand how much money, how much income they're bringing in. But in that case, during that time, it was almost entirely cash and checks. So that is what they use as the standard to this day. They don't count certain transfer payments. They don't count uh, the welfare programs that certain people get from the government because it's considered a transfer payment. And also, on the other end, when that was looking at 
poorer families, the families that use government assistance. So if you don't calculate those in, then obviously their value, their income is going to be less. And if you look at the top end, they're not actually accounting for the taxes that that top 20% is losing to the government. Therefore, you're not counting income that they can't actually use. So, you know, there is a little bit of a trick there that they're trying to point out. And this is why I'm always very cautious when I hear statistics, because they can be manipulated. Like everything else, they can really be used to fit a narrative. And as well as the fact that most people are not well informed enough to spot the mistake or manipulation, such as myself. When I looked at this economic disparity, these numbers, first off, I was never given the context of how they calculated it. You're just told in the front page, you're just told uh, the disparity is 16.7 times greater between the top 20% and the bottom 20%. And they don't necessarily highlight how they got that number. And even if they do, it may sound completely legitimate. And you may not have a deep enough understanding to say, oh, well, what about those welfare payments? I had never thought about that before. I had never thought about including that in income. So this is why I find statistics very, very tricky. And I'm happy there are people smarter than me willing to break this down. But also, what I want to point out here is, for all I know, these two authors could be including data here that is redundant or helps support their bias. So... I'm not necessarily saying that this is the end-all, be-all. I'm not saying they're 100% right. But for the rest of this article, we're going to go off the basis. We're going to continue on the premise that they are correct, that they are saying something that is smart and that they know what they're doing and that they're not trying to manipulate us because that's the only way I think we can have a proper discussion around this topic. So, But if their method does stand up to scrutiny, then they estimate nearly 40% of income is not being properly reported in the United States. And remember when I talked about the welfare transfer payments? And some people may argue, well, no, no, that's not actually direct income. That's maybe a food stamp or something to that effect. Let me ask you a question. Let me bring up an example. So if you get a $100 Subway gift card for Christmas, would you say that that's income? Maybe not. But then think about the fact that you do not have to spend $100 of your wage on Subway. So even if it is not cash income, it does replace the use of it. And therefore, it does preserve income that you would be spending otherwise. So I think that it should be calculated. Welfare programs should be calculated because if you look at food stamps, they allow you to not have to spend your wages that you're earning at your job wherever you're working. It allows you to say, no, no, well, you're going to use these food stamps. We can save a little bit of our income, which then in turn affects the overall income because you're able to keep more money. So, yes, I do think that they should count these programs that allow people to retain more of their wages from the companies that they work at. I think that's only fair. I think that only really makes sense at the end of the day. Quote, there are, the authors report, at least 100 federal programs that spend more than $100 million annually providing transfer payments to households, as well as an uncounted number of smaller programs, transferring some $2.8 trillion a year. By 2017, they write, transfer payments were a whopping 18.2% of all personal income by census counted, only one-third of those transfers, $0.9 trillion, 
as income to the households that received them, end quote. And 0.9 trillion is 900 billion. They just wanted to make it sound bigger. So that's a lot of money not being included and calculated when looking at the income of certain segments of the population. Quote, thanks to the vast transfer of income and accumulation of federal debt, the actual poverty rate for children is not the U.S. Census Bureau's 2017 figure of 17.5%, but rather 3.1%. For Americans 65 and over, they add the proportion uh, in poverty falls from 90.2% to 1.1%. The upshot? Social Security, Medicare, Supplemental Security Income, food stamps, and other transfer payments have virtually eliminated poverty among seniors, end quote. And that's, that's a miracle. And that's something that I think is worth pointing out here, and I think the authors bring it up for a very important reason, which is this is one of the most vulnerable populations in the United States, and that's also why they bring up the children. And if we have virtually eradicated poverty in not totally eradicated, but virtually down to 1.1%, then at the end of the day, it proves that these programs can be effective if done properly and if supplemented with income saved over a person's lifetime and years of wisdom and understanding of how to operate within our economic system. And I think that's very important. And I think that leaves a gives a good example because it shows that the people that actually make it to 65, they tend, they're probably going to be not the people making stupid risks and taking stupid chances. They're probably not the ones smoking and making bad health decisions. They're the ones that are a little bit smarter that have probably saved their money a tad bit. And of course, this is a wide generalization, but at the end of the day, it shows that with prudent saving, with prudent understanding of what's going on and with a perspective that I will make it. I can use this government assistance to help me out, but I also have to save for the future. We can, at the end of the day, get rid of poverty. We just have to encourage certain behavior rather than just handing out money and saying, no, 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 no. You're just going to take this money and you're going to be dependent on the government for the rest of the future. And let's be clear. I guess the author does highlight here that the people who are taking these benefits are actually doing better than we think they are. But at the end of the day, the only way to lift those people out of that situation in the first place, go beyond how much money they're actually making and how many transfer payments they're getting from the government, the only way to get them to lift out of that situation is to make them to readjust their mindset, to make them understand what has happened and why it has happened and how they can get out of their situation. And let's be clear, there are, of course, situations that this doesn't apply to. Some people with disabilities, they are not necessarily able to get the same jobs that everybody else is, but there are plenty of dis disability benefits and jobs nowadays. And at the end of the day, you have to change your mindset. You can't get lost in this mentality of, oh, I'm down and out. I have nothing better to do. You have to have self-value. You have to have self-worth. You have to try to develop these things. It's not easy to have these things. But at the end of the day, you have to say, I am worth something. I'm worth more than this $5 wage I'm getting from this company on the side. I'm worth $10. I'm going to go out. I'm going to prove it. I'm going to work hard in order to get my wage that I deserve, in order to bring myself and maybe even my family out of this terrible situation. So we have to change the mindset on a social level before we can really start breaking down 
how much transfer payments are going to these people. Because at the end of the day, they're just looking at a symptom of the problem. They're not trying to address the problem itself, which is the mentality our society has taken, which is I can, oh, just live off the government. The government will provide for me. They'll give me the answers. No, no, the government will not provide for you or should not have to provide for you. Maybe it will. But at the end of the day, it should not have to provide for you. You should be able to provide for yourself. At least that's my personal opinion. And I think that is the big problem with our society. And I think these authors are pointing out a symptom of it when they think that they're pointing out the cause. And they are pointing out the cause of the political conversations that this disparity is misquoted. But they are not going further. They're not offering a analysis of why this actually matters. And I think it matters because at the end of the day, we do have more people falling into these situations with that mentality of the government will help me. And at the end of the day, we need to stop that before we can truly address how much welfare money is going to these people. But people are going to take different approaches. That's just how I think we should tackle it. All right, let's move on to our last article from Truth Out. Peace activist takes on the Pentagon's corporate merchants of death. You know, that's very sensational, don't you think? Both Gen Z and millennials have grown up and come of age, respectively, in a time where we fought wars that have amounted to practically nothing. We have they've led to the loss of lives of young Americans and they filled the coffers of the military contracting companies. On December 28th, people gathered outside the Pentagon and other branches to protest their massive companies that they use for military contracting and their role in continuing American involvement in quote unquote forever wars. Among these was Phil Bargain who spoke saying, quote, oppose any and all wars, he urged. There has never been a just war. Don't get tired, he begged the people, adding, I love the Buddhist proverb, I will not kill, but I will prevent others from killing, end quote. And these protests came after another 858 million was earmarked for defense spending in a new government funding bill for 2023. Quote, by depleting funds desperately needed to meet human needs, the U.S. defense budget doesn't defend people from pandemics, ecological collapse, and infrastructure decay. Instead, it continues a deranged investment in militarism. Phil Burian's prophetic intransigency, sorry if I butcher that, resisting all wars and weapons manufacturing, is needed now more than ever. Outraged by the reckless slaughter of innocent people in wars ranging from Vietnam to Afghanistan, Phil Bergen insisted that weapons manufacturing profiting from manufacturers profiting from endless wars should be held accountable for criminal activity. The w- weapons corporations rob people with and worldwide of the capacity to meet basic human needs. End quote. So this does of course, raise questions as to whether or not we are using government funds appropriately. While I don't necessarily agree with the use of our nation in proxy wars, but I I do believe that America needs to have a strong presence on the world stage. If that comes in the form of military bases, military alliances, uh, naval games, training, other countries that are our allies, things like that. I think 
that is still worthwhile. But I also don't necessarily think that Phil, and let's be clear, I'm not saying he hasn't thought it through, but I think he doesn't want to admit how dependent the U.S. economy is and how many jobs are provided by these military contractors across the United States. And it, it really is one of the backbones of the U.S. economy. So I would say to Phil, is, is ac- uh, he's accurate in some respects and idealistic in others. He sees the dismantling of this industrial complex, this military-industrial complex, as necessary, or at least to limit our dependency on them. And while I, I can see an argument for that, at the, end of the way, at the end of the day, I'm more of a realist. I think that deterrence comes from power. And if you can demonstrate you have power, you still have superior technology, and you're willing to fund companies in this day and age that are making these technologies and ensuring that our technology is superior on the battlefield, that is an active deterrent from people that may want to challenge us on the world stage. And that, of course, is a very realist perspective, and I know that that's my bias in this situation. But I do think Phil brings up a lot of interesting points about these forever wars and bombings of different locations that may have the first one they bring up here in this article is talking about how there was an accidental bombing of a doctor's across borders hospital. And these sort of things are absolutely outrageous using drones, not even having a personal touch. is That's the thing that really gets at my, my heartstrings, which is. It is a person sitting in Utah with a controller in their hand bombing what they think is a different location where ISIS leaders may be hanging out, and they end up hurting and killing children, doctors, people there that, that are trying to help people that have been hurt by this war. And that person can't truly assess their actions they can understand, oh, I, I just did something bad. I accidentally bombed a hospital. But they can't be there on the ground seeing the effect of their actions. It doesn't really hit home. And I think that's another aspect of these forever wars. We've become so detached in the way that we do military activity that we can't truly see the effects that we have wrought on these communities where we have bombed them with drones or we have gone in, done our job, and then left. So, of course, this is a very deep discussion, and I think that it needs to keep going, and I respect these people protesting for what they believe in. All right, we're going to jump to our daily delight. The Animal Rescue site gives us this one, and it's Dog Patiently Waits Outside for Doggy Daycare Bus to Pick Him Up. So some of you may have seen the viral video recently of the dogs getting on a small bus and finding their seat with no hesitation. Quote, in Segway, Sagaway, Alaska, there is a very adorable bus service that shuttles pups to and from their doggy daycare. This dog service is known as Mo Mountain Mutts, which is run by 30-year-old Mo alongside her husband, Lee. Their bus offers many drives, such as dog walking, dog training, and, of course, doggy daycare. End quote. So, you know, it's absolutely adorable. When my girlfriend's dad first showed me that this amazing video, we were both shocked at how well trained they were. And it was just so cute how they would instantly jump up in their seat and then Mo would come back and just leash him up to the seat. It, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing what people come up with, honestly. Quote, the TikTok that they uploaded on their page uh, of the bus service is just so stinking cute. 
In it, you see all the different dogs getting picked up from their houses. Since it's Alaska, there's snow outside, and they're all wearing sweaters, and it's the cutest thing to watch as they all greet one another aboard the bus, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos, or if you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all this different information, as well as the Twitter handle at your daily flip. Uh, I try to post links on Monday, Wednesday, Friday to the podcast so you can go directly from there rather than having to come into YouTube and search anything. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.